You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Advent is the celebration of the first and second coming of Christ. We remember the first coming of Christ at Christmas, but we also build this hopeful expectation that the Lord will be true to his word and that he's coming back. And as we celebrate Advent, we strengthen our faith with four gospel themes. We've been focusing on them throughout the series. It's hope, peace, love, and joy, which takes our faith away from being something vague and into something being biblical and strengthened, that this is what faith looks like. And we named this series Singing with the Saints, that we would realize that God's people for all time have always been singing, and we have a joy to join them, a joy to join the worship of all the universe of God, and that our worship of God actually forms our very soul. As you worship God, it does something to you. It changes you. It makes you more hopeful, peaceful, joyful, and loving. And today we're going to look at what it means to worship God from our heart, a heart loved by God, a heart that belongs to God himself. And I want to point out something from the psalm. It may seem obvious, but I want us to think about it a little deeper, that worship requires your body. It might seem obvious, but listen to how the psalmist put it in Psalm 100. Look at verses 1, 2, and 4 with me. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. We wrongfully divorce spiritual things from physical acts. And that's found nowhere in the Bible. That's the world saying, oh, the spiritual's over here, and and what we do in material life is over here. And the Bible says they're one and the same, that you're a body and the soul. You're a whole person all together. You need a body to obey the Lord, and we are expected to obey the Lord with our body. Listen to those bodily words. Make music, serve, come and enter worship with God's people. And so what should it look like when we're making and serving and coming and entering together? Well, the Bible gives us some instructions here. Did you know the Bible actually talks about God's people singing 400 different times in scripture? It's not like a light and momentary uh, contemporary Christian music suggestion. This is like a theme of the Bible from beginning to end. It's how Revelation's going down. It's how God's people are singing all the way in between. And of those 400 times it describes us worshiping and singing with our voice, 50 of them are direct commands to sing to the Lord praises, not suggestions, not maybe sort of, not if you're good or bad, but direct commands to say, sing to God. If a leader ever stood on a stage and told you that you don't have to sing, he lied. Or they're misinformed, or maybe they just said, my cultural preference is better than obedience to God. And I got an easy fix, and it's good news, church. You can start singing today. (laughs) Easy fix. 
And in church, truly, I'm in the running for the worst singing voice at Citizens. If you've ever been near me, you know. I got a real friend in Charlie. I got a real friend. Early on, I was too close to the live stream. And he says, we're gonna have to move this microphone or move you. I'm telling you as a brother, as a friend, who we can say anything. We have a phrase in leadership that says, hey man, you have a highway to my heart. You can say anything to me ever and I will always believe you and trust you. And that day I had to trust him a little more. We moved, we moved the mic, we moved the mic. <laughs> and what we're told to do when we sing is to both treasure the Psalms, treasure the hymns, treasure the songs of old, but the Bible is also explicit to sing a new song to the Lord. There ain't no one song that's gonna capture all the Lord, not in any one language, not in any one genre. God says, I want you to make things. I want you to create things. And I want you to bring your heart to serve when you lead and serve when you worship and to come and enter, to not be afraid of God's people, to to jump into the mix. But the Bible also speaks of using instruments to praise God. Look at Psalm 149. It says, let Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament, rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion, that's fancy for heavenly Jerusalem, for this heavenly place, let the people of heaven be glad in their king. Verse three, let them praise God's name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and a harp. Charlie, we gotta get a timbrel and a harp. A timbrel is a tambourine, so use the drums, fam. A harp is ancient keys. And you can dance before God. Dancing before God isn't a one-off verse. They're like, oh, Justin found the one verse he wants to dance. No, check this out. Psalm 50, take a look. 150. Praise him with the timbrel. That's back. And dancing. Praise him with strings and a pipe. So we got timbrels laying down a beat that you can, you can move with. We got strings, we got a guitar, and we need a pipe. I've been waiting for a flautist or a saxophonist since we planted the thing. If you have a hidden talent, today's the day. I'm ready for it. And again, it says, let the dancing flow. The greatest king in all the Old Testament is King David. And he got down so hard that people were hating on him. And he's a forefather, a forerunner of Christ. He's to point us to what the spirit of the Lord will be like imperfectly. But that is the heart of God before God. So here's the question, church. Why don't we dance? If our whole body is expected to show up and obey and be part of worship, you might, you gotta wonder, why don't we dance? You might ask, do we have to dance? Well, some parts are cultural here. The Jewish life of the Old Testament, they danced when soldiers returned. They danced at festivals. They danced at good news. It's all over the Bible. And sure, the commands to sing, to praise, and worship, they're they're way more explicit and way more vast than references to the body and dancing. But I don't think the problem is scriptural evidence because the main word for worship in the Old Testament means literally to bow down, to use your body to worship God. But I think the reason that we are uncomfortable using our bodies to worship God has mostly to do with shame, particularly over our physical body or over belonging to God and his body of people. 
In fact, I think shame motivates huge parts of our life, including our worship or lack thereof of worship. Guilt is a feeling you have when you've done something wrong or refuse to do what's right. That guilty feeling, that guilty conscience. But shame's a bit different. It's deeper. It says something's wrong with who we are. Feels like a dirtiness or even like a sickness that can't get out of your bones. Dr. Ed Welch, a preeminent Christian counselor, defines shame like this. Shame is the all-too-human experience of worthlessness, failure, and not belonging. It could come from what we have done or from what others have done to us. Once you notice it, you see it everywhere. For example, if you have a hard time believing the Lord could love you, you will find shame there. I think most of us live with some deep shame over belonging and our bodies. And the idea of dancing in general could be tough. And the idea of dancing in church, that's a little too much to bear for many of us. Shame comes from experiences. It's learned. It's part of our sinful world. But our hearts are also prone to shame. But it wasn't always this way, church. Adam and Eve once looked at God in the face in the garden, and this is what it said, Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Shame feels like the norm. Self-consciousness and shame all around us and everything we do, even motivating huge parts of our life. But it actually wasn't meant to be this way. Then after sin in the garden, the Adam and Eve become aware of their bodies and feel shame. Look, Genesis 3-7 is specific. This is as biblical as it gets, fam. At that moment, their eyes were opened, then suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, church, our goal isn't to get back to walking around naked. Remember, Adam and Eve were a married couple. It's describing a specific scenario there. But how much say do we give shame and sin over our bodies each and every day? The shame that keeps us from raising our hands, from dancing, from delighting even in music, from singing from our heart, from enjoying worship at all. How loud are the shouts of shame in your heart that you cannot hear the whisper of your sweet Savior saying, come to me? Too often we stand in fig leaf silence instead of rejoicing in our Lord's salvation. How much does the fear of others' judgment hang over us on Sunday, even though you know citizens isn't a judgy place? That maybe experiences from your path have taught you, oh, this is where judgment is. It's like, that hasn't been our story. So how long are you going to keep obeying those ghosts like they're in the room? And they ain't here. How much does the guilt of sin determine your enthusiasm for worship? How much does being taught implicitly or explicitly to hate your body limit you from the enjoyment of what God has made in bone and blood? What experiences are keeping you from worshiping God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and, and your heart, mind, soul, and strength? 
limiting your very expression of love to God and maybe even limiting your experience of God's love to you. Have you ever thought about like, perhaps there's a whole nother trail system I'm just not on? Roughner's right over here. Have you ever thought like, maybe I'm on one trail of like worship and there's actually like eight more trails? But for whatever reason, the story that runs in my mind all the time, the shame that Dominic says, I have to go on the, on the blue trail. And there's actually a whole mountain. There's more to God to be found in worship. And Colossians says, you will be taught through worship. There is a whole world to experience God. Don't let shame steal it from you, church. The gospel of Jesus sets you free from others' judgment, even if they're judging. The gospel of Jesus sets you free from the guilt of sin. It's forgiven. Confess it, repent it, move on, friends. Dwelling on sin is not as sweet as dwelling on your Savior. The gospel of Jesus says shame isn't in charge of your relationship to your physical body, nor in charge of your relationship to this body, nor in charge of your relationship to the God. Salvation is what rules you, not shame, my friend. And do you remember what God has actually said about your body? In Genesis 1, God created everything itself, the earth, the water, the birds, the animals, the trees, the forest. And he said, good, 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 good. Day six, he gets to man and says, very good. God's first word about you is your body is very good. Psalm 139 drops it like this. He says, for you were formed, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. What could be more intimate than a grandma knitting you together? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God's fingertips have been on your life since the womb. I praise you. He immediately, Psalmist says, because God made you, we praise him that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Church, God made you and made you wondrous. God's been body positive since the beginning of time. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your fitness level. It doesn't matter your body type. If God knit you together, then that's enough. And everything less than that, or more heaping of shame of that, is a lie. You are to know at a soul level, your body isn't bad. That's not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. That's materialism. Your body is not bad, no matter how much your body feels like a shame magnet. Your body was made by God and for God to worship him in song in all of life, to live to the glory of God. Church, we are bodies. We are blood and bone. We're not just suitcases for our soul. If you think your body is just a container for your soul, I'm telling you, you may have been taught that, but they're wrong. That's bad, shallow theology. You live your life before God in a body. You will die in a body and you will rise from the dead in a body. If anything less than that is your hope, then you're not hoping in Jesus. Our God got up, amen? And he got up in his own body. He showed them the nail-scarred hands. It wasn't a new body, but it was the same body, new again by resurrection. That is our hope that we would get comfortable in this body and realize we're just one whole person. That's who we are. The gospel is good news for us 
And our response is worship to him in a forgiven and unashamed body and soul. And belonging to God, this deep belonging, means a love without end. Look at verse five with me. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Verse three told us this, know that the Lord, he is good. It is he who made us and we are his. Shame says you're worthless and you will never belong. But God says he made us and we're his. God has told you church, you are mine. And if God says you are mine, that means he is yours. Do you believe deep down that God is yours? That when we say personal relationship with Jesus, we actually mean it? That it's personal, it's a relationship, and we're part of the body? Belonging starts with believing to know the Lord is God and that he made you. And in Christ, through faith, through his life, death, and resurrection, you are his. That's the gospel, friends. That's what we're doing not because you lived a perfect life, but rather Jesus did and you came to him in your need and that's the good news that God has forgiven you and brought you in and is never gonna let you go. In all the ways we miss God's love, it starts with a fundamental lie that God is somehow less than perfectly good. It's the same lie that the devil slipped us in the garden. Can you really trust him? Is he really as good as he says? But when you start to believe that God is good and Jesus is great evidence of this, that he would die for us as sinful people, when you start to believe that God is good, you start to at least entertain verse five again. Look how God's goodness is expressed to us specifically. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God's love never ends. It's steadfast. Many of us have never even felt a love sort of like that. It's more wobbly. It's up and down. The quality and quantity of God's love is something we don't even have, even in our very best moments. And where does God's love extend? Well, his faithfulness is to us, but it's actually to the generations of all of God's people so that if you follow Jesus, you're part of the generations of God's worshiping and singing people that far outweighs whatever it says on ancestry.com for you. It's a bigger family tree. It's a global family tree that connects you to the good God who created all things. And love, like peace, is a word that's tossed around. It's something that if it means everything, it actually means nothing. And love is an equation like this. Love equals commitment and affection for another's good that increases with understanding. Love is a commitment and affection for another's good, comma, that increases with understanding. Love without commitment, but full of affection is what we call lust. No commitment, high affection. Love without appropriate affection, but full of commitment is cold like a contract. No one ever hung out on the wedding day and said, this ring I give you, 
to have and to hold because I have to, contractually. That's not gonna get you married. That might break up the ceremony right there. Love that decreases with understanding shows that the love is not actually about the person being loved, but about the preferences of the lover. Love that decreases with understanding shows the love is actually about the lover, not the one being loved. True love says the more we get to know each other, the more I want to be with them, not vice versa. Love that increases with understanding shows the love is about the loved one, not the lover. And this is how God loves us. God actually understands us from beginning to end. That Psalm 139 would go on to say, he knows all the days of your life before they are ever lived. He knows the very worst of you and loves you the same. 1 John 4.19 puts it this way, we love because he first loved us. The gospel doesn't start with us getting it right. It starts with God's right love towards us. God's commitment to us is ultimate. Look how it speaks of Jesus on the cross. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Doesn't get more committed than your actual blood. His affections are unmatched. The Bible invites us to marvel at his affections. Listen to 1 John 3. See how much, see how much, very much our Father loves us for he calls us his children and that is what we are. Look at this, he even includes a line to say how unbelievable it is if you don't belong to Jesus yet. But the people who belong to this world, not Jesus, they don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. To know God means you know you belong. You're not in the wrong place anymore. You're exactly where you belong to be. And it's a three-legged stool, commitment, affection, and understanding. If you've ever had a three-legged stool and a leg falls off, the stool falls over. And I think a lot of times when we talk about the love of God, it falls flat because deep down, one of the legs of the stool is missing for you. We miss God's commitment to us when we fail to realize that Jesus is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. So we always run around trying to prove to God how committed we are, trying to earn his approval like a father or mother withholding love. It's not who God is. We miss the affection of God towards us so we avoid spending time alone with God. We even make ourselves scarce on Sundays because we're never sure God actually likes us or wants to be with us. Quiet times sound terrifying if you don't know the affection is gonna come. Or three, we miss God's understanding of us, that he knows it all, yet loves us the same. So we tried to hide things from God, hide things from others, even hide ugly truths from ourselves. Church, it's tough to worship Jesus passionately when we live unsure of God's committed, affectionate, full of understanding 
love. So my kids uh, are gotten very into sports. We've long been NBA fans, the World Cup. They have suddenly won. We actually watched the Mighty Ducks, and they were like, quack, 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 quack around the house. So we said, hey, let's do all the cheaper sporting events in Birmingham. We went to a Sanford football game. We went to a Birmingham squadron game. We went to all sorts of basketball games. But this was the scene at the end of an exciting squadron game. T-Bone, this is my son Tyler, had just had enough. He had been excited. He'd met the mascot. He had danced at halftime. Um, This is my more mature parenting that's learned just to laugh at the tantrums and just move on. That this too shall pass. Hey, T-Bone already did this with Eloise. We're good. And T-Bone was fully melting down and had a nice scream sesh for the 10-minute walk to the car. Squadron Green was great. I highly recommend. Uh, Game was great. But as we get home, Tyler didn't calm down. His tantrum continued. Um, And he actually laid down in the grass in our yard and said, nobody loves me. And I'm not coming in. Once again, as a more mature parent, instead of sitting there and pleading with them, I said, sounds great, man. (laughs) Enjoy. I'll see you inside when you're cold or hungry or done crying. And he he waited us out. He gave us a good 10 minutes, knocked on the door, told us he was running away. I said, go nuts, man. (laughs) But eventually when he came back to the door, I got to kneel with him and say, Tyler, you know I love you, even when you're bad. You know I love you even when you cry. I know uh, even when you threaten to run away, even when you're mad at me, that my love doesn't change at all. And he hugged me and then, you know, asked for a snack. Typical Tyler. Well, hours pass. I go to, I go to uh, student ministry here at Citizens. Shout out student men. Woo-hoo. We got to get a better woo-woo than that. Come on, guys. <laughs> woo-hoo. And Elena puts the kids to bed that night. And uh, we have a phrase in our home that we kind of end the night, we, we talk, we pray, and we kind of end with the same phrase for all of his life, that mom and dad love you, but Jesus loves you the most. And Tyler kind of rolled back around and looked at mom in the face and asked, does Jesus love me even more than dad? Because dad loves me even when I'm bad. And Elena got to tell him the truth that Jesus is a far greater lover of you than dad ever will be. Far more solid. As much as you love dad, Jesus loves you far more, son. I think a lot of us live our life in half of a tantrum. Saying everyone hates me. I'm going to go eat some worms. No one loves me. But church... Would you dare to believe that God actually loves you? That you belong to him? That his love is steadfast and he will be faithful to all the generations of those who follow him? And because you're secure in the love of God, would you worship him with all of your heart? He's committed to you. His affections are sure. He understands whatever it is this week. 
And he's asked you to enjoy the gift of worship with him.